Who are the first Jews to settle America, and why did they come? What was life like for the Jews in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries? In this class, we discuss the history of and lessons from the Jews of colonial America. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. The Jews of colonial America. That's our topic for this evening. And to really understand, to begin the conversation, the Jews of colonial America, we need to kind of go back in time just a little bit. We need to go back to Tishabov near 1492. Tishabov of 1492, I believe that was August 2nd, 1492. But before we go to Tishabov of 1492, I need to tell you the backstory of why Tishabov on 1492 was an important date. To understand that, we need to back up another 500 years before that. And you thought you were coming for the Jews of colonial America. I got you back to like the year 900, even earlier. Jews, beginning in the year 700, really in the 800s, began settling the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, mainly what we would call Spain. And for about seven or eight centuries, the Jewish community in Spain flourished. It was one of the richest periods of Jewish history in terms of scholarship, in terms of economic output, in terms of accomplishment. Seven, eight hundred years, the Jews of Spain thrived and flourished. They typically lived under Muslim rule. This was the era of the Sephardim. You've ever heard of a Sephardi? Sephardi in Sephard in, in modern Hebrew is a reference to Spain. And the Jews of Spain for centuries developed remarkably well. But in the 1300s, really even earlier, in the late 1200s, the Christian reconquest of Spain, coming from the north, driving the Muslims down south through the Iberian Peninsula, slowly drove out, drove out the Muslims, and shortly thereafter began clamping down on Jewish freedoms. Really beginning in 1391, there were terrible persecutions of Jews, the hands of the Christians, in Spain. They suffered terribly. Many Jews beginning in the early 1400s, to escape the pressure and the persecution, began converting to Christianity. Some of them actually converted out of conviction, but very few. Most of them, most of these converts, really didn't care much for Christianity, and many of them actually still maintained Jewish practice. They still practiced their Judaism quietly in their basements. These conversos, these crypto-Jews, became a problem to the Christian authorities. You have these people, because once you convert, you're a Christian, you can't, there's no turning back. But you have this big population of conversos, these these Jews who converted to Christianity, but who are actually living a double life. They're living a life openly as Christian, but they're not very pious in terms of their Christianity. They began calling these Jews, these crypto-Jews, derisive names. They used to call them Moranos. You may have heard that term, a Morano means swine or a pig. These were Jews who converted to Christianity, but quietly were practicing their Judaism. And really beginning in 1480-something or other, as a way of enforcing religious doctrine, they began the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition was a body that investigated people who were Christian, but whose religious convictions had lapsed. If you weren't Christian, if you were actually still Jewish, you were actually not subject to the, to the Spanish Inquisition. And that left a little bit of a gap because there you still had a bunch of Jews 
who were still practicing their Judaism right there in the middle of Spain. And then finally, after years of tolerating with that, Ferdinand and Isabel, the king and queen of Spain, passed the Alhambra Decree, which banished the Jews and kicked the Jews out of Spain. It made it a crime to be Jewish in Spain. You could either convert to Christianity, in which case you're now subject to the Inquisition, you could get killed, or you must leave. The last day that the Jews were allowed to stay in Spain and remain Jewish was August 1st, 1492. August 2nd, the first day that if you were still Jewish in Spain, you were subject to the death penalty, was Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av of 1492. Judaism, when we talk about Tisha B'Av, when we talk about that mournful day on the Jewish calendar, it's not just the destruction of the first temple, it's not just the destruction of the second temple, which both occurred on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. But historically, Tisha B'Av has been a day of national tragedy and calamities. Many tragedies occurred on Tisha B'Av, including the outbreak of World War I, as well as the Alhambra Decree, the Spanish expulsion. But one of the most amazing, if not inspiring stories, why we open today with this conversation, we need to turn to the Talmud. The Talmud tells us in Tractate Megillah 13b, it references the story of the Megillah. We all know the story of the Megillah, where the evil king Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And when the Megillah, the story, when it introduces the story of Haman, it says, Achar Hadzvarim Ha'ela. After these events, the king appointed Haman, and Haman, we know the rest of the story, tried to pass the decree to kill all the Jews. And asks the Talmud, after Achar Hadzvarim Ha'ela, after these things, after what? What is this after? Omar Rava, says the great sage Rava, Achar Shabara HaKadosh Baruch Hu Refua Lamaka. After God created the antidote, for the disease. The Amar Reish Lakish, because the great sage Reish Lakish used to say, God does not punish the Jewish people. God does not, as it were, hit the Jewish people. Ella in Cain, unless, unless God has first created the antidote for whatever tragedy they're going to have to deal with. The Talmud explains, after these things, if you recall in the Purim story, what happened right before Haman rises to power? Esther is appointed the queen. The refua, the cure for the disease of Haman, was actually created before the disease even happened. The Talmud says this is a pattern in Jewish history. One of the most amazing divine examples of this was on that dark day, Tisha B'Av of 1492, the day before Tisha B'Av, as Jews were literally getting on the boats to nowhere. You have to remember, when the Jews were expelled from Spain, it's not like today, you know, if I told you you had to leave, everyone, out of Nevada, all right, you pack your stuff up, you go in the car, I don't know where you go, you go to Idaho, you go to Utah. <laughs> you drive, what's the big deal? God forbid, I'm going to have to go to California. <laughs> the Jews back then, they were, you were getting on boats to nowhere. Where were you going to go? There was no one who wanted these Jews. Unscrupulous boat captains would take advantage of their travelers and passengers. It was a horrible experience. In the docks, as the Jews were getting onto, onto their boats to nowhere, there was another boat. There was another boat in the harbor. The captain of that boat wrote the following entry in his log as he was about to set sail. He references the fact that the Jews are getting kicked out at, right before his eyes. The captain writes, after having banished all the Jews from your 
from all of your kingdom and realms. In the same month of your highness ordered me to go with sufficient fleet to the said regions of India, I came to the village of Palos, which is a seaport, where I fitted out three vessels very suitable, well supplied with a large quantity of provisions, and with many seamen on the third day of the month of August, the day after Tishabov, I'm going to set sail. In the said year of 1492, on a Friday at half hour before sunrise, and took my way to the Canary Islands. So begins the, the log, the travel log, of one Christopher Columbus. Literally, as the Jews are being banished, the Maka, God is punishing the Jews. The salvation of Jewry. It's right there in the boat next to them. As Christopher Columbus sets sail, what he thought was India, to the day he died, by the way, he did not believe that he discovered a new world. He thought he had discovered the coast of India. But Columbus's misnavigation notwithstanding, Columbus will discover the future salvation for what would be probably maybe the fourth generation of some of those Jews on those very boats. Just a few generations they would end up there. And certainly maybe 10, 15 generations later, a half a millennia later, the United States would be the great salvation the great you know, Medina, the great country that really has been uh, Medina Shachas, had a great kind nation to the Jewish people. And that's where our story begins. As the Jews leave Spain, where do they go? So many of these Jews we've talked about in classes prior. They've settled along the Mediterranean basin. Many of them went to Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, the emerging Ottoman Empire, and points east. Many Jews went to Portugal, where they were banished five years later, 1497, they were driven out of Portugal. Now, some Jews were able to stay in Portugal, again, as crypto-Jews, but by the 1530s, they had moved farther north. Many of them ended up in Hamburg. Some of them ended up in France, which is interesting because the Jews had been kicked out of France. So how did they end up in France? The answer is they were Portuguese tradesmen. That's how they identified themselves. They didn't identify themselves as Jews. And many of these Jews ended up in a new country that had just fought for their independence from Portugal, a new country called Amsterdam, uh, called the Netherlands, and they settled in Amsterdam. By the early 17th century, synagogues, a Jewish school, Jewish printing houses had opened in Amsterdam where most Jews lived. Economically, meanwhile, the community expanded and thrived. As early as the 1630s, one study shows, Jews of of Iberian descent were responsible for as much as 8% of all the trade happening in the Netherlands. So the Jews are finding themselves in, in... in the Netherlands. In 1630, the Netherlands, the Dutch, they, they spread their wings. And they actually capture some of the territories that had been under Portuguese domination. Particularly, the colony of Pernambuco in Brazil, in the New World, where they established a new Portuguese community. Particularly, the city of Recife, Brazil, on the coast. And when they got there, they overtook the Portuguese that had been there. They found and discovered that some of the inhabitants of Recife, Brazil, were actually crypto-Jews. And meanwhile, as the Netherlands takes over Recife, Brazil, many Jews who had been economically successful in Amsterdam, well, they find themselves moving down to Recife as well. The Dutch West India Company, now, these were pri- many of these were private ventures. These were businesses. The Dutch West India Company invested heavily in these areas. And they actively sought to attract Jews to develop these areas economically. Many of these Jews were actually very successful in Recife. They had known the language of a lot of people that had lived there under the Portuguese. 
And in secret instructions, the, the West India Company explicitly ordered the chief of, it, of its expedition to grant Jews liberty and certain freedoms. And at its peak, in the, probably in the, in the, let's say in the 1640s, there were somewhere between 1,000 and 1,400 Jews, between a third and a half of, of the total population. The community included ordained rabbis, an active synagogue, two Jewish schools, more than any other community in North America would have for more than 200 years. So Recife, Brazil, was really quite a successful Jewish population. However, they enjoyed, they enjoyed rights, things like that. However, by 1654, in January 1654, the Portuguese recaptured Recife, Brazil. And with that recapture of Recife by the Portuguese, again comes the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition stayed in business well into the 1800s. So whenever Jews, they were on the run for centuries. Matter of fact, technically speaking, we've looked this up, the Spanish Inquisition is actually still binding. It just has a different name, and they don't burn us at the auto de fe, but technically speaking, the, it's just under a different jurisdiction. It's still on the, on the books in the Catholic Church somewhere. In January, January 26, 1654, when the Portuguese take over Recife, Brazil, what's going to happen to these, that one, a thousand, I think at this point there was a little bit less, I think there's about 600 Jews back in, in, in Recife, where were they going to go? Three important developments were taking place right at the same time. In the year 1655, Jews had been banished from England. Jews have been kicked out of England since like the 1290s. But in the year 1655, maybe a conversation for a different class, an important discussion in its own right, one of the most interesting people in, in uh, Jewish history, a rabbi named Rabbi Menashe ben Israel, he petitioned Oliver Cromwell to allow the Jews back into Great Britain. The official answer was no, the Jews are not allowed back into, into, into England. But no one's going to nod, nod, wink, wink, he could come on in. And beginning in 1655, the Jewish community of London was reestablished. So many of the Jews from Recife actually went back to London. Now, they also did go back to Amsterdam, but some went to London. A second place that a lot of these Jews from Recife they had to get out, a second place that they went to were the Caribbean islands. Before this class started, I was talking to some of the folks here. The Caribbean, for about a century and a half, was, a dom was dominated by Jewish life. We gave a class a couple months ago, if you recall, our Alexander Hamilton class was Alexander Hamilton Jewish. And the answer is probably not, but it is a possibility. Where was Alexander Hamilton born? The Caribbean, Nevis. He was certainly raised Jewish or had a Jewish education. There's no question about that. What were these Jews doing in Nevis? The answer is these were Jews who had been kicked out of Recife, Brazil. And they had established themselves in the Caribbean. And the fourth place that these Jews went and surely what most people in Recife at the time probably thought was a crazy idea, a small group of 23 people got onto a boat called the St. Catherine in September of 1654. And they set sail north to a small colony that had just started on the coast of North America. And they landed in a place called New Amsterdam, September of 1654. And so begins, just a few days before Rosh Hashanah, so begins the story of American Jewry. September of 1654. But the truth of the matter is, if we just take a moment back, step back, they weren't the first Jews to make it to the United to North America or to the colonies. This was the first Jewish community. There had been individual Jews who had made it to North America. Perhaps the first Jew to step foot in the New World, possibly 
Is Christopher Columbus himself? Is Christopher Columbus Jewish? I don't know. That's not for today's discussion. But there are theories. It's a bit, it's one of those, we're never going to know the answer. We don't know Columbus's origin. It's very, very shady. Simon Wiesenthal wrote an entire book, Sales of Hope. Simon Wiesenthal puts, puts forward the theories and why he believes Columbus is Jewish. Is it possible? It's definite, it's a definite maybe. It's a definite maybe. It's plausible. He did have what is certain is that Columbus had on his boat, there definitely were Jews. There was one guy, Yosef Ben Ben Halevi Halvri, that's his name, Louis de Torres. He was the Voyager's interpreter. He was definitely Jewish. So there were Jewish individuals in the New World before the Recife group in 1654. And in 1585, a Jew named Joachim Gontz served as the metallurgist and mining, right? Can't pronounce. And mining engineer to an all to the to the ill-fated colony on Roanoke Island, the Outer Banks. So there was a Jew there, right? If you know that story, that that didn't last very long. I'm sending you all back to you. Remember that in AP American History? Remember the Roanoke? I, you know, remember that whole thing, right? There was the failed colony of Roanoke Island. They vanished, leaving only three. Remember that? They only left three letters. Engraved in a in a tree, C R O C R O A maybe. They had theories on what that meant. But the the colony vanished. Thereafter, a small number of other Jews, individual merchants and the like, would come and go to the United to again not the United States. What would be the, eventually the colonies? <clears throat> One of them, Solomon Franco, was a ju- Dutch merchant. Landed in Boston, where he was promptly told, "Because you're Jewish, please leave." A couple of Jews actually did make it to the to New Amsterdam as well. And some of them, a couple of individuals were Ashkenazic Jews. What in the world would an Ashkenazic Jew be doing in the New World in in the 1650s? And the answer is a couple of Jews. If you remember your Jewish history, what was happening in Eastern Europe just a few years earlier, these were the terrible, terrible pogroms of 1648 and 1649. The Chmelnetsky uprisings, which were the most difficult chapter in Jewish history, arguably from... You know, the time of the Spanish expulsion to the Holocaust would probably be the destruction of 1648, 1649. So a couple of individual Jews did find themselves in the new, in the new world. But none of these groups really lasted. Why not? Why didn't these individuals, like, what, what happened to these guys? So I think the answer is pretty, pretty clear. We talked about this at the explanatory service, which everyone should be participating at Shabbos morning right here at the Kolel at 9.45 a.m., right? Of course, we all know about that, where we have too much fun. Me and Rabbi Goldman in the back over there. We have too much fun at 9.45 Shabbos morning. Everyone should be aware of that. The verse, we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The verse tells us, God tells the Jewish people when they're on the precipice of entering the land of Israel. Everyone remember, God tells Moses, Moses, through Moses, tells the Jewish people, make sure that you drive out the Canaanite nations. Once you get into the land of Israel, drive out the Canaanite nations. It's not because of nationalism. We're not a hostile people. The problem was we gave them ample opportunity to leave or to convert, or to, they didn't even need to convert. They just needed to accept, you know, the seven Noahide laws. But God said, you cannot have these pagan people who have corrupt, evil ways living in your midst. Why not? God says, if you do not drive out these people from your midst, those who get left over in the land of Israel while you go in, they're going to be they're going to be splinters in your eyes and they'll be thorns and they'll be uh, and they'll and they'll be their thorns in your in your thighs 
and explains Ramban, we talked about it. The idea isn't they're not, it's not that they're going to attack you. It's that they're going to influence you. Their pagan ways, their immoral, idolatrous behavior is going to rub off on you. Why? Because that's human nature. We like to think that we're independently minded. My attitudes, values, beliefs, well, I'm a proud Jew. I know what's right and I know what's wrong. Guess what? History teaches us, and it's right here, the Torah tells us, that's not human nature. That's not how we operate. We are influenced by the people around us. And if you don't have a developed, solid Jewish community, if you are not part of a solid community, you are going to be influenced by the people around you. And says Ramban, that's what the verse means. you got to get rid of these people. you got to drive them out. It's not because we're nationalists. It's because these people have terrible, immoral, corrupt behaviors. And if you let them stay, you're going to end up learning their evil ways. You want to know what happened to all these individual Jews, these Yechidim, these individual Jews who made it into the, into the United States? What happened to them? They vanished. Of course, they assimilated. They just learned the ways the people around them. They ceased functionally after a generation, after two generations max. They just vanished. That's the end of their story. So the Jews are now in the new world. 1654. Most of the ship's passengers, according to one eyewitness account, 23 souls, big and little. Many people have made a big deal about the 23 Jews. It's really, I think it's, you know, this group of 23. First beginnings, emergence of a Jewish community in the United States. People often call them the Jewish pilgrims. And it's a little bit of a misnomer to think of them in that kind of context. When we think of the pilgrims who settled up the Massachusetts Bay Colony, these were people who, they were pilgrims. They had left the corrupt ways of the world behind them to restart and rebuild a new world, pure from the corrupt ways and beliefs, people in the old world. The 23 Jews from the Recife group that landed in New Amsterdam, the island of Manhattan, these were refugees. They weren't going there because they wanted to go there. They were going there because they got kicked out of Recife. And it needs to be understood in that light. These were like pioneers with great vision. These were destitute people on the run for their lives. They came involuntarily, penniless, in the need of refuge. And who do they meet when they get off the boats? Who do they meet? The governor of, it's really the colony, it's called the New Netherlands Colony, but, but, but New Amsterdam is Manhattan Island. Who is the governor? Peter Stuyvesant. Peter Stuyvesant. Who was Peter Stuyvesant? Peter Stuyvesant was an anti-Semite. Stuyvesant explained said that the Jews were deceitful, very repugnant, and hateful enemies and blasphemers of the name of Christ. He asked the directors of the Dutch West India Company to require them in a friendly way to depart, lest they infect and trouble this new country. He warned in a subsequent letter that giving them liberty, we cannot refuse the Lutherans, the Papists, and if we let these repugnant people, the Jews, stay in New Amsterdam, what other vile people are going to end up coming? Contaminate. The directors of the West India Company, who Stuyvesant had to answer to, wrote back the following. They said, We observe that it would be unreasonable and unfair, especially because of the considerable loss sustained by the Jews in the taking of Brazil, and also because of the large amount of capital which they invested in shares of this company. After many consultations, we have decided and resolved upon a certain petition made by the said Portuguese Jews that they shall have permission to sail and trade in New Netherland and to live and remain there provided that the poor among them shall not become a burden to the company or to the community, but be supported by their own nation. You will govern yourself accordingly. Read that carefully again. Did everyone see what happened there? This is what the governors of the Dutch West India Company write back to Stuyvesant, who wants to kick the Jews out. So again, he says, number one, we think it's unreasonable, unfair to kick the Jews out. Why? The considerable loss sustained by the Jews in taking of Brazil. 
look, these guys, they were, they were one of us also. They worked hard to, for the success of the, of the Recife project. So, the lack of Akaras Tov, it's ungrateful to kick these guys out, number one. But number two, did you see what, he, what they wrote there very carefully? The large amount of capital which they invested in the shares of this company, right? As the protocols of the elders of Zion point out, the Jews control the banks, control all the money. Well, a little bit, I guess, <laughs> God forbid, but it's true. The Jews were heavily invested in the Dust West India Company. Many of their stockholders were Jewish, and they told the directors to tell Stuyvesant, let the Jews stay. It's pretty cool. But there was one condition. The condition was they are allowed to stay, but they cannot become a burden on the society. And this is actually an interesting theory. If you actually fast forward, this isn't, we don't really see this today in society and maybe even the past, past generation. This really was a very common um, element of Jewish American history all the way up to the Great Depression. Jews never wanted to be part of the public dole. If Jews found themselves down and out, if Jews were financially troubled, if Jews had whatever kind of trouble or distress, they very rarely would petition the government. Theories that I've heard is that it all goes all the way back to the, to the first Jews of the Recife group who were told by Peter Stuyvesant, you can come, you're fine, you're allowed to stay here, but A, we don't like you, and B, don't leech off, off the society. You're going to have to take care of your own. And that attitude would be definitely a part of North American Jewry for those who are at our class when we talked about the Great Depression, it would take a number of years before Jews felt comfortable taking welfare. And a lot of that attitude comes from here. Stuyvesant would constantly petition for the next couple of years. He petitioned that, you know, really, let's try to kick these guys out. But every time he was rebuffed. However, they were told they can't, while they were allowed to stay and their economic liberty was protected, the Jews weren't allowed to build big public synagogues, at least early on. They weren't allowed to do that. But the truth of the matter is, for the Jews of this group, that was fine. They weren't looking for religious freedom. They were looking for just basic freedom. That no one's going to kill us. No one's going to persecute us. So we'll dive in, we'll pray privately. Not a problem. That wasn't necessarily what they were looking for. There's one great story in 1655. If you go to, to Lower Manhattan, you'll see a street and a park named after a fellow named Osser Levy. Anyone from that area ever remember Osser Levy Park? It's kind of down at the bottom of the... Uh, near the battery down there, there's Osser Levy Street. Who is Osser Levy? Sounds like a Jewish name, right? It is. He was. In 1655, Stuyvesant issued orders for the enlistment of all adults as border patrol. But of course, you can't have a Jew do border patrol. We're not going to give him, him arms, give him the, you know, to let him be a policeman. So Osser Levy wasn't allowed to be part of the border patrol. Well, if you're not going to be part of a border patrol, you're going to have to have to carry your weight. Finance. You've got to pay for a substitute. Master Levy says, that's not fair. I'm ready, willing, and able to serve. Let, let me serve. You're not going to let me serve. Don't make me pay for it. He petitioned, and he won. And he was, he became one of the, the guards. This group, the, the Recife group, ends up, they settle in Manhattan. They would end up being involved in commerce and trade. Um, they were port Jews. Import, export, that would be their primary source of business. That explains why they, they were very successful. And that's why they, according to some theories, they had extraordinary privileges came to enjoy many modern features, distinguished their lives. How many were there? You fast forward to, let's say, 1776, which is obviously a nice, important date in American history. So all the way from 1654 all the way till 1776, which is a long time. By 1776, the best numbers say there may be two and a half, maybe 3,000 Jews. 
in the entire, all of the colonies. Now, it wasn't just this group from Recife, this 23, uh, these 23 Jews. Many others would come. Other groups from Recife. Others over the next 150 years, 200 years, would come from the Caribbean. And by the mid-1700s, now I should take a step back. These Jews in the communities, which we'll talk about in a moment, these were Sephardic Jews. And the communities that they established would follow Sephardic tradition. By, let's say, I don't know, 1750, if not earlier, the majority of Jews in most of these communities were Ashkenazic. Because you're not talking about a huge group. You're talking about, you know, 2,000 people. If you get a trickle of Jews from here and a trickle of Jews from there and a couple of Jews from Poland and a couple of Jews over there, it doesn't take much till the Ashkenazic community is actually the majority. However, these communities would still stay Sephardic you know, well into the 1800s, well into the 1800s. Now, one of the things I, I always, a story I love to share, I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but it's, I like it, is a number of years ago, many, many, many years ago in a different lifetime. So I once taught American history, AP American history in a boy's yeshiva. And I remember asking them the following question. I started the course, I think it was like one of the first days of the semester, I asked them the following question. I said, you know, if you're all be familiar, right, before you have anything to eat, you say a bracha, a special prayer you recite before eating any food. And there are different brachas, different prayers you recite over different foods. So water, we say shakol niyabibaro. For vegetables, bore priyadama, thank you God, the creator of vegetables. For fruit, bore priyadama, thank you God, the creator of, of fruit. In Jewish law, you could well imagine what you know, we understand what a vegetable is. I know what a fruit is, right? You can well imagine there's a margin where it's, it's a little gray. What, what is this a fruit? Is it a vegetable? How do we define it? As a matter of fact, interestingly, right? Little fast fact trivia. In Kornik Jewish law, a banana is a vegetable. Make the bracha. The bracha on a, on a banana is bari priyadama. Why? You'll have to come to one of our classes later. <laughs> Bananas are vegetables. So I start, and so sometimes you have surprising halacha. Surprising laws. So I tell this group, yeshiva students, I said, great Maimonides, Rambam, great halachist, that great thinker, what bracha does he say? What's the prayer you recite on a potato? What does Rambam say? Now, if you know anything about halacha and Jewish law, a potato, according to every opinion ever in the history of ever, is a vegetable. It's not a trick question. But this was a trick question. I told the students, I said, if anyone can find me, the Rambam discussing this issue, I'll give you a million dollars. Million dollars. See, the Rambam never saw a potato in his life because the potatoes are North American crops. And as these communities get established, certainly after Columbus in 1492, Rambam lives in the 1200s, 1100s. You have a lot of interesting questions that emerge of new types of fruits, vegetables. The great questions is, turkey, are turkeys kosher? Turkeys are North American birds, if you recall. Not to take us too far afield, but according to most traditions, most normative halacha, what constitutes a kosher bird? The answer is the Torah identifies a list of non-kosher birds. We have to have a tradition that a bird is not one of those non-kosher birds. How in the world do we have a tradition that turkeys are kosher? No one ever saw a turkey until 1492. <laughs> it's a great question. So you have a lot of these interesting questions that emerge and all the halachists and commentaries begin discussing the 15 and the 1600s. 
Where do these Jews who settle? So we know about this group that land in New Amsterdam. Let's talk about that group for a few more minutes. In 1654, Rosh Hashanah, they established, according to what most, not all, but most argue, they established their first synagogue. The oldest synagogue in the United States of America. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. No, isn't the oldest synagogue in the United States of America the Toro Synagogue? The answer is, not really. It's the oldest building. It's the oldest building, but there were congregations that predated the Toro. The name of the Toro Synagogue is, is Yeshuat Yisrael, which we'll talk about in just a moment. The building is the oldest. It was built in 1760, but there were congregations that predated the Toro Synagogue by 100 years. The group that settled in, in New Amsterdam... They established a community, and they called it Sheirit Yisrael, Sheirit Israel. Interesting, the words, the name, Sheirit Yisrael, Israel means the remnants, the survivors, as it was, of Israel. Aptly named, you could just imagine, these were Jews who are on the run, who had been expelled, and they kind of viewed themselves as the remnant, the survivors. Sheirit Israel. What happened to the congregation, Sheirit Israel? It still exists today. The Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, still in existence today in New York. More of a modern Orthodox synagogue. Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik is the rabbi. Still going. 1654. Pretty cool. Most of the Jews that came from that, that Recife group, most of them, we don't know what happened to them. They did not, it seems that they didn't stay in New Amsterdam for very long, except for mainly that fellow who we talked about, Osir Levy, who he himself, by the way, I think he was actually Ashkenazic. He wasn't really part of those group, that group, but he was somewhat part of that Hebra part of that group. They had a Torah that came their way in 1655, so they actually had a Torah scroll that came from Amsterdam, but we have records of that. It was a Torah with a green a green uh, Torah cover, but it made its way back to Amsterdam in 1663, which implies that the group, the minion, the shoal, the synagogue wasn't really functioning, but it would come back to life in the 1680s after the fall of New Amsterdam, which was taken over by the British. What happened then? The British basically said to keep, keep things a status quo. The Jews could stay, but don't be too, become too big of a nuisance. By the early 1700s, the Jewish community in Lower Manhattan had become developed and big enough that they purchased their first shul, the first proper synagogue that was ever built in the United States of America. Up until that point, they were just praying in people's homes. Or they were renting small quarters. But the first permanent synagogue... It's called the Mill Street Synagogue in Lower Manhattan. Now I think it's renamed, I think it's William Street. Somewhere in Lower Manhattan. Again, it doesn't exist anymore. But what was interesting, it was a fascinating pattern that you see with the establishment of the Jewish communities, these new Jewish communities in in colonial America, was that oftentimes the first thing that they would do is before they would build themselves a synagogue, they would get themselves a cemetery. You could always daven in your backyard. You can always have the, all right, well, I'll pray at Bob's house tonight. But people get very, or I won't pray at all. Just happens, unfortunately, more often than not. But people get very spooked out by death. And people were very uncomfortable with the notion of being buried in a Christian cemetery. So cemeteries were often established. I think the Sheriff Israel, the cemetery was established in 1657, if I recall. We don't know where that cemetery is, but a new one was then established in 17-something or other which I think still exists. And that was the story with, with uh, Sherith Israel. Now, there were five major cities of Jewish development in colonial United States up until, let's say, 1776. Really five cities that had Jewish communities. Now, there were isolated Jews everywhere. 
a Jew here, a Jew there. But what communities where you have a shul, a synagogue, you had a minion, you had at least some kind of established something. There were five major communities. The first was Sheriff Israel in New York City and Manhattan. If you were a Jew looking to establish a community, if you remember your American history, what colony would you probably want to go to if it was the late 1600s, early 1700s? What would be the, con- the community that gave you the most freedom? I heard it. Say it loud again. Rhode Island, if you recall your American history again. If you don't know your American history, I'm shaming you all. No, I'm joking. Rhode Island, established by Roger Williams, who is the great, he believed in religious toleration. So in Newport, Rhode Island, there was a group of Jews, probably, we don't know exactly who these Jews were. I believe it's a group of 40, 15 Jews arrived in 1658. We believe these were Jews from Recife, but they didn't come directly from Recife. Because again, the Jews were kicked out in 1654. We think these were Jews that went through the Caribbean to Newport. So they came through the Caribbean to Newport. Again, they had their, built their cemetery in 1697. But it seems that this, this community did not do very well. In the early 1700s, they removed their Torah scrolls and they sent them down to share with Israel because like, it sounds like they just didn't have a minion. However, by the 1740s, it seems like the community was rejuvenated. They reestablished the community, and the Turo Synagogue was just, was built in 1760. Why was it called the Turo Synagogue? Anyone know? Named after one of the founders of the congregation was a fellow named Isaac Turo. The college, I actually went to Turo University, we have it down here, so I went to one in New York, is named after the Turo Synagogue. What they don't tell everyone and don't teach us is that Isaac Turo was a Tory. He ended up fleeing for his life. He was a British loyalist during the the American Revolution. He was on the bad guys team. (laughs) He ended up dying in Jamaica. He had to flee for his life. Another community, third community where Jews ended up establishing was down in Georgia, in Savannah. Now again, if you recall your, your American history, AP, this is on the exam, folks. The Georgia colony was established by who? Very good. James Oglethorpe. And what was the, 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 what was the colony in Georgia? What was, what, who first settled the, the colony in Georgia? The, all right. Uh, very good. Everyone learns it was the, it was the, it was a penal colony. All the prisoners from Great Britain, they sent them to, they sent them to Georgia. It's a little bit not really true. It's halfway true. Yes, it was a penal colony of sorts, but it wasn't like a bunch of like thugs. It was mostly white-collar, not even white-collar crime. It was debtors. Back then, right, you would be sent to debtor's prison. So these were people who just had bad luck. They weren't like bad people necessarily. And that's how Georgia was originally was originally established. Now, Oglethorpe didn't want Jews, this is my understanding, didn't want Jews moving to um, moving to Georgia. Why not? I believe it's one of the books that I read, which I didn't bring in here. But one of the theories that I read was he didn't want Jews in Georgia, not because he's, you know, the classic anti-Semitic thoughts, but because he really wanted to establish Georgia as an agricultural colony. Jews, we're not very good at agriculture. We're doctors, lawyers, and accountants. And he didn't want doctors, lawyers, and accountants. But eventually they would make it down there, by, I think in, 17, in the 1730s, the, the Jews made it down there. Um, they established a shoal called Mikveh Israel, down in in, uh, in Savannah. And it's an amazing story. Of course, they built a cemetery. They built a mikvah. These were mainly Sephardic Jews, but there were a couple of Ashkenazic Jews. It's a remarkable story. What happened is in the 17... I'm sorry. In, by, by 1733, there were 42 Jews 
Many of these Jews, by the way, oh, it's interesting. Many of the Jews who came, who were in Savannah were actually from London. We had mentioned the Jewish community in London. Well, many of these Jews from London now set sail, and they, they're looking for, they want to spread their wings too. Many of them landed in, in Georgia, including one doctor who supposedly cured them. They all got sick one day, and the Jewish doctor, of course, cured them. And then they said, all right, the Jews can stay. <laughs> In 1742, the Spanish who were in Florida, the Spanish who were in control of Florida had invaded Georgia. It's interesting. If you're a Spartac Jew living in Georgia and you hear that the Spanish are invading your colony, what are you thinking about? The Spanish Inquisition. And the Jews fleed Savannah. The only Jews who, who remained were the Ashkenazim. We're like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's remarkable. And they fled north, mainly to Charleston, uh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So that's the story. It ended up becoming a little bit of a smaller congregation. Now, the next big congregation was, again, got a little bit of a later start, was in Philadelphia. So we know Pennsylvania was established by the, by the Quakers, who tended to be, you know, and John Penn, who tended to be good to the Jews. And they started a congregation also called Mikveh Israel, which was established in September of 1740. And that was the story with, with Philadelphia's Jews. They would become a lot more significant. The Philadelphia congregation were, again, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're not in this tonight, we're not going to get to the Revolutionary War. That we're going to have to do a part two to this class. The Jews of the early Republic, just sort of like a different phase. During the Revolutionary War, well, let's just fast forward. During the Revolutionary War, many Jews had to go on the run, especially Jews who were patriots, part of the revolution, if you were in New York, if you recall, New York became a stronghold for the British. And the Jews who were not loyal to the crown, they had to go on the run. You know, a lot of them would end up making their way to the Philadelphia and Mikveh Israel, and that's really when Philadelphia became a, became a thing. Up until that point, it was a very small congregation. It wouldn't be till the actual, till the revolution, that's when Philadelphia became a bigger community. The fifth and final community that Jews during the colonial period really established was Congregation Beth Elohim in Charleston, South Carolina. It established itself in 1749, and by the during the late colonial period, Charleston was actually the biggest Jewish community, significantly bigger than even the New York. You can imagine such a thing. And they would actually, the first Jewish publicly elected official would be a fellow named Francis Salvador, first Jew to hold public office, would be down in Charleston. Now, there are a couple of interesting colonies where, that had no Jews till significantly after the American till after the Revolution. Massachusetts. Why were there no Jews in Massachusetts? Massachusetts was established by the Puritans, the Pilgrims. They were religiously intolerant. So Jews were not welcome in Boston. There were, to our knowledge, there were no Jews in Boston, you know, during the Tea Party. They weren't there. It seems also there wasn't, I mean, there also wasn't a lot of economic activity or opportunity for the Jews, so they did not establish, they were not there. Very few Jews in Connecticut. Maryland, my home state, no Jews there. Baltimore would become a big Jewish community, but that wouldn't be at until after 1776. Maryland was originally established as a community for who? The Catholics. Now, they were, it was originally established as a Catholic community, but the Anglicans took over. So, in between the Anglicans and the Catholics and them all bickering, they certainly didn't want any weirdos like the Jews showing up. So Jews were not found in, in, in Maryland. It wouldn't be until, 70, until 1776. Now, Virginia would be a little bit late on the scene. Virginia in Richmond would start a Jewish community in 1769, 1770, something like that. And it would actually, beginning in the early republic, 
it would become one of the most significant and influential Jewish communities. One of the most notable thing about all of these communities, about all of these communities, was what you wouldn't have seen. What was absent in all of these communities, in all of these synagogues, what was missing was the rabbi. The first rabbi to come to the United States of America would be Abraham Rice in 1840, almost 200 years after the establishment of the first Jewish community in 1654. Why? It should be noted that many of the other communities, the other religions, they also didn't have ministers. So it wasn't such an anomaly. Everyone was new. Everything was brand new. They were all pioneers. So who ran the congregation? So for the first, again, till 1840 and even past then, but certainly in Sherith Israel, Mikveh Israel, what you had was you had a different system. You had what was called the Chazan. What's the Chazin? The Chazan is the cantor, the fellow who would lead the services. But back then, it was sort of like an honorific. It was actually a title. He, he was not a rabbi. He was often, almost always, unlearned. But he was the guy that would lead the congregation. Would he give a sermon? Yeah, because no one else could. But it was remarkable how unlearned the population was. There were no scholars, there were no rabbis. And of course, what's going to happen when you have no scholarship, no leadership, religious observance waned. A lot of it is because they just didn't have anyone to inspire them. A lot of it is because they just, they were ignorant. I highly doubt there was an entire volume of the Talmud in, you know, by the time of the American Revolution. You know, it's an interesting thing. We always talk about in, in my yeshiva. Remember the story with Jacob and he gets into a fight with the guardian angel of Esau. Do you remember that story? There's a story, Torah tells us that Jacob is crossing the river and Asab's guardian angel, whatever that means, I'm not really sure, gets into a fight with Jacob. And Jacob's wrestling with a heavyweight bout. Who's winning? Jacob. No problem. But then the morning comes. The angel's got to go. And what does the Torah tell us? He lands one punch. The angel lands one punch on Jacob right on the thigh. So I believe it's Sfarno explained an amazing thing. He says, how could this angel, you talk about an angel, how could the angel not beat up Jacob? What happened? He explains that Jacob is a righteous man. His mind was totally engrossed, thinking about God, he was praying, and because of his divine connection, he was in a meditation of sorts, his mind was so spiritually connected, the angel couldn't land a punch. Jacob was defended because of his spiritual high, his force field of spirituality. So how was the angel allowed able to land the punch? I believe it's Rabbi Sfarno who explains the angel distracted Jacob. How did he distract Jacob? Rabbi Sfarno says he told him prophetically of the failures of the Madriche Ha'am, the failures of Jewish leadership in future generations. And when Jacob heard that in future generations, the leaders there's going to be failures of leadership. Jacob, uh, he got, it shook him. He got distracted. Oi! Bothered him. And in that moment, the angel is able to land a punch. That's what the Medrash says, according to, and that's how Rabbi Sparno explains. And my rabbi would always, like, highlight. Isn't that interesting? You're an angel, and you need to distract Jacob. And apparently, in your reservoir of armaments, You've got prophecy. You can tell Jacob about whatever you want to tell him about the future of the Jewish people. What are you, what card are you going to play? What weapon are you going to pull out? The Holocaust, Tishabav, the destruction of the temples, the expulsion. That doesn't shake Jacob. 
We'll get through that. It'll be difficult. Jacob is able to stay focused. Not a problem. What knocks Jacob off kilter? Talk about the failure of leadership. Whoa, Jacob can't handle that. Because, my rabbi would always explain, leadership is vital. We need to have people to inspire us. We need to have people to teach us right and wrong. We need to have people to lead us. And when you have a failure of leadership, that funnels its way down to the masses. It's not a small problem. It's a massive problem. That's one of the biggest challenges that this community would have for 200 years. There was really no Jewish leadership. And it showed. These communities suffered massively. The rates of intermarriage, the rates of assimilation in all five of these communities was monstrously high. The lack of real Jewish involvement was terrifying. Did these Jews keep kosher? Yes, they tried. So long that you lived near one of these congregations, they provided kosher meat. We have record of that. It was actually, wait, you know, these, these communities, the way they, the shoals would make money, you would have, they would provide kosher meat. But if you moved far, you know, any distance away from the shoal, you abandoned kosher. Shabbos was very, very difficult. We find that the wealthy Aaron Lopez rigidly observed Saturday, Saturday as holy time. A Swedish naturalist, Peter Kalm, heard that the city's pious Jews never boiled any meat for themselves on Saturday, but that they always did in the day before, and that in winter they kept a fire during the whole Saturday to avoid lighting a fire on the Sabbath. However, he also gives us reports of Jewish laxity. Indeed, there's evidence that Jews were trading on the Sabbath and traveling in violation. On the one hand, we have stories of a fellow named Isaac Solomon, had a Christian wife, but he traveled all the way from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Sherith, Israel for Rosh Hashanah. And in 1755, John Franks traveled in a canoe for Rosh Hashanah all the way from Canada. But these were the exceptions. Most Jews just didn't keep and abandon their, their religion. Intermarriage rates, estimates of the Jewish intermarriage in the colonial period range from 10 to 15%. Men intermarrying more frequently than women. Just to end maybe with one one last anecdote. We talked about, you know, there's a lack of leadership. There was a real lack of Jewish engagement. And the Jewish communities, yes, they were there, but they were very, very flat and stagnant. One of the chazans, the leaders of, as it were, of probably the most significant Jew of this um, period, and really, he really bridges our gap to the early republic and the Revolutionary War, was the chazan of Sherith Israel. His name was Gershon Mendez Satius. Gershon Mendez Satius. He was born in 1745. He was a very significant per- person. He was the first, to, to our knowledge, the first American clergyman to deliver sermons in English. Uh, he became involved in civic activities. Now, most of these congregations, including Sherith Israel, maintained their Spanish-Portuguese heritage. So if the sermon wasn't in Hebrew, it was being Portuguese. It would take a hundred years till they would, you know, the kids didn't speak Portuguese anymore. It would take a long time till they would allow English in there. Satius had many c- communications with George Washington. He was, he'd end up serving on the board of King's College, which eventually became Columbia University. He fled with the Torah scrolls from Sherith Israel. He went to Newport, then as we mentioned, then down to Philadelphia during the revolution. I believe there's a story that he, there was a chasana, there was a wedding that happened back in New York. He smuggled himself back into New York to officiate the wedding. Oh, I think he did get caught, but he escaped and then got back out. By 1784, he, um, he resumed his position back in Sherith, Israel. He was one of the first ministers to preach a regular Thanksgiving Day sermon. 
He was among the 14 clergymen honored and chosen to participate in George Washington's inauguration ceremony. He had a lot of children. Chazin, he's the leader of the Jewish community of New York. One of his kids was a fellow named James Satius, who would end up becoming a teacher of Hebrew, I think in Harvard, I want to say, where he ended up actually teaching Hebrew to Joseph Smith. <laughs> and James Satius ended up marrying a non-Jew and apostatized. You know, we talk about Jewish pride being so important, especially in today's day and age. How many self-hating Jews are there? It's a tragedy. Jewish pride is super important. There's no question about it. Jewish pride will get us so far. It will only get us so far. That great monster Bilam, that prophet, non-Jews, if you recall the story, the Jews are in the desert and Balak hires prophet and hitman Bilam to curse the Jews. You know the story that he offers instead of a, of a curse? God puts blessing into his, into his mouth. He offers blessings to the Jewish people. One of his blessings is, Behold, the Jewish people live amongst themselves. They dwell by themselves. We're unique. We're a different people. Jewish peoplehood will survive crisis. We're eternal. But what's eternal about the Jewish people is not our national pride. That will only get us so far. The only thing that ensures our eternity is what the verse tells us in Deuteronomy, it shall not be forgotten from your children, says Rashi, quoting the Talmud, we have an assurance that the Torah will not be lost. Judaism, Jewish people, Jewish pride, that can come and go. You can be proud of your Judaism. And that's great, and it's important. And we need to teach our kids to be proud of our Judaism. It's super important. That will only go so far. I am sure Gershon Mendez Satius, the leader of New York Jewry during the colonial period, was a very proud Jew. His own son converts to Christianity and becomes the Rebbe of Joseph Smith, of all people, because there just simply wasn't enough Torah. They did not have enough education. There weren't yet. Was there a synagogue to pray? Yes, it's important. Where were the day schools? Where were the yeshivas? Where were the kolels? Those were grossly lacking. And that would be the story, not just to the Jews of colonial America, but really for the next 150 years, not until the early 1920s, until the, Jew, the Torah institutions would really first begin to appear on the scene in North America. Which is why, you know, they, the Jewish American historians will tell you there's not much to American, Jewish American history. It's a story of assimilation. Sadly, it's kind of true. Because there just simply was not enough connection to Torah. If Gershon Mendez Satius' own child leaves the fold, now what does that say about you know, the rest of society back then? And what does that say about society today? Please God, we should all strengthen our commitments to the Torah. We should all make sure, we make sure that we do our part to connect to Torah. And please God, we'll ensure the continuity of the Jewish people for many generations to come. I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.